Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Um, well, I'm glad you made it here today. We're in our Ruth series, and uh, I'm going to begin in chapter 2. How many of you were here last week? Okay, a few of you were here last week, and so... Uh, we're, we're talking about Ruth. I'm going to spend about maybe three weeks in uh, this, this book. It's uh, kind of an expository series, and I just want to share just a few thoughts with you uh, today. Before I do that, thank you for your prayers. Please pray for your, uh, my wife, not your wife, my wife. Please pray for her, because if she doesn't come back, you don't have a pastor anymore. And uh, thank you for all your prayers. I promise I'm going to be a good dad. I'm going to take my kids to school. I was, t- I was warned that I can't take my kids to McDonald's at all. But I'm a good dad. I'm going to spoil them. I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I-, I promised that I would uh, steam broccoli for my children. So pray that I can uh, be able to do that. Um, so if you brought your Bibles, turn to Ruth chapter 2. And uh, I'm going to spend just a few minutes in Ruth, Ruth 2. And uh, before I, before I uh, read just a few verses, uh, just as a, a refresher from last week, we talked about Elimelech. Everyone say Elimelech. So Elimelech, he, as, we, as we read in chapter 1, he, uh, he moved from Bethlehem. Bethlehem in the Hebrew means house of bread. So he leaves the, the place of provision, uh, the place where God wanted him to be, to go to Moab. Moab in the ancient Near East uh, was seen as the archetype of sexual disorder. So here we have kind of the storyteller is saying that this move from Bethlehem to Moab is not just a geographical move, it's a theological move. Uh, Elimelech is turning away from God. He wants to play it safe. Uh, He doesn't want to obey God's voice. And so he goes to Moab. And and what does he uh, experience? He experiences death and famine. Uh, his son's names, uh, good, good Klingon names, right? Uh, Kling, uh, what is it? Um, Malion and Klingon. Uh, in, the, in the poetic, has a dark poetic ring or sound to it in the Hebrew, which means sickness and dying. And so Elimelech, because he chooses to disobey the voice of God, he'd be the equivalent of like a, a nominal, kind of quasi-Christian, kind of doing his thing, coming to church every now and then, um, maybe saying his prayers whatever, but he, he makes his decisions based on what's best for him rather than what God is telling him. And so it affects his whole family. And I think there's something to be said about legacy. I think what we do right now, everyone say right now, what we do right now affects not just our own lives, it affects our future. It affects our kids, our grandkids. Uh, it has an effect on our legacy. Uh, it's funny, yesterday I was uh, washing my hands. I like to wash my hands all the time. My, my little daughter, Whitney, she came up to me and she goes, Dad, why do you wash your hands all the time? And I remember I looked at her and said, because, kid, I, I don't want to die, okay? I just don't want to die. It, it freaked her out. So the rest of the day, she's washing her hands, like, all the time. Uh, it's funny, though. It's, it's funny how... What you do, especially as a parent, how many parents do we have here today? What you do as parents affects your kids in ways you can't even imagine. And so my daughter's washing her hands because she doesn't want to die because that's what her dad told her, right? Um, it was funny, a couple years ago, uh, how many Cowboy fans do we have here? Okay. Um, you, you, if you're like me, when, when, you, when the Cowboys are losing, I just like to point my finger. I like to scream at the TV. And I just, you know, I, I've gotten better. Uh, I've repented for my anger, my outrage. Uh, but I, it was funny, um, about a year ago, my boys were inexplicably just raising their voice and shouting when, when they were losing. And I realized, oh my gosh, they remind me so much of their mom. <laughs> right? Just want to make sure you're awake, right? All that anger, hatred, outrage. But no, it's what, what you do as a parent or even as a follower of Jesus, it affects uh, not just yourself. It affects your family, affects your kids, uh, it affects your place of work, it affects your neighbor, uh, it affects your city. So I think we have a responsibility to listen to the voice of God, not play it safe. Can I get an amen to that? Because that leads to, as Mark said, it leads to blessing, it leads to life. And how many of you in this room want life? About five of you, okay. We want life. And so it's funny, I, a long time ago, a scholar, he said, Protestants, if you don't know, we're Protestants here. Protestants think in weekends. I've got to get the worship service right. We've got to get the Pentecostal two-step going. 
uh, we got to sing our, our hill song. We got to do all our songs. And usually Protestants think in weekends. Catholics think in centuries. And I've always been struck by that because I think I, I, I like to be Catholic in that way. I like to, to think in the future, knowing that what I do right stinking now uh, will either bless uh, my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids, right? Or it will set them in a trajectory that leads them away from God. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but this is the story or a cautionary tale that we find in Elimelech. So Elimelech, because he chooses to disobey the voice of God, he leaves his wife, uh, Naomi, everyone say Naomi, leaves her bereft. She's widowed. Uh, back then, in this ancient Near East setting, they don't have, is it Lincoln, right? Lincoln. They don't have like, a, like any sort of networking. Uh, yeah, stop judging me, all of you. <laughs> stop it, right? There's no women's suffrage, no equal pay, right? No Me Too movement. Uh, in this ancient setting, if you lost your husband and if you lost your sons, they were your economic support. So essentially, in this ancient setting, Naomi is reduced to what? Nothing. Meaninglessness. She has no economic future. And then we, we talked about Ruth. Ruth doesn't play it safe. Uh, she, she looks to her mother-in-law. Naomi hears the story or hears word that Bethlehem has food. And so she tells her two daughter-in-laws that she's going to move back to Bethlehem. Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. Beautiful, lyrical words that Ruth speaks to her mother-in-law. says, where your people are, uh, I will go. Uh, where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God, and we're probably going to die. Essentially, her words uh, as they immigrated back to Bethlehem. And so we come to this, the, the end of chapter 1, uh, as Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem, as we talked about last week, uh, Naomi announces a public lament. And I just want to read this. She comes to the town, all the women gather around Naomi, and these are the words of Naomi. She says, in verse uh, 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And maybe some of you feel that way today. We talked about this last week, but maybe some of you in your 20s and 30s, you were filled with potential. Now you're in 40s or your 50s, and you just assume that your best days are behind you. And this is where Naomi is. She just simply assumes, probably in her mid-40s, that her best days are behind her. And then she continues, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So now we come to chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And now here the story changes. We begin in verse 1, it says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, uh, a worthy man. Everyone would say a worthy man a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So worthy here, if you can keep it on verse one, worthy here in the Hebrew means a prominent man, a man of wealth, uh, a man that is conspicuous. It can mean a lot of different things. Essentially, Boaz is like Thor, right? Uh, he's the most eligible bachelor. Uh, he's the most interesting man. He's probably six foot five, long, beautiful hair, right? Uh, we don't know, but maybe, but we do know he has a lot of wealth. He, he's a landowner, and um, he probably, in the, in, during the weeks, he wears Gucci. In the weekends, he, he wears Jerry Lorenzo. And if you're over 45, you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? Just go with the flow. So he has a lot of money. He has his G-Wagon, right? He's rolling in his G-Wagon. And people respect him. Everyone say respect. So this, he, he has respect. Um, but Boaz stands out in the story. Everyone say stand out. He stands out in the story not because of his wealth, not because of his status, not because of any achievement. He stands out in the story for a different reason. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This is essentially the title of my message. I want us as a church to stand out for the right reasons. And we'll talk about how God's called us to stand out for the right reasons. So we have Boaz. We're introduced to him. Uh, he's, as, as the story will continue, kind of unfold in a dramatic fashion, that he is a kinsman, redeemer, and I'll try to flesh out what that means. But we come to verse 2. Verse 2, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Don't you love the faith of Ruth? 
Right, right now, in, in, in this setting, in chapter two, everything is like a dystopian novel. Like everything's bleak, it's gloomy, it's dark. And yet she says with gravitas, I love this, with faith, I will find favor. Can I get an amen? So she's filled with faith. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Verse three. So she went out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Could you turn to your neighbor and say, she happened to come. Say, say it to your second choice. Say she happened to come, which is your other neighbor, okay? She happened to come. This is just a digression, but I think you need to hear this. The storyteller is using this very Hebrew phrase to exaggerate chance. It's almost like the storyteller is winking. Not just, this isn't just a nice cosmic accident, right? Many people think we live in a causal world, uh, run that runs on like chaos theory. There's all these multiple variations and we can't really control anything or maybe God's really not in control. Um, the Hebrew storyteller is winking at this. She happened to come is a literary foil to the words of Naomi. Naomi, she assumes that her best years are behind her. And yet we have this, this saying it's almost like, again, it's like a tongue-in-cheek, a little bit sarcastic, kind of playfully protesting that this world runs on just accidental, causal, random events. She so happened gives us or evokes this, this beautiful idea that even though you can't see what God is doing in your life, God, even though it might be hidden or out, lies outside of your purview, he's still at work in hidden ways bringing the story that he has for you, not your personal story, but his story for you to fruition. You see, God can produce good out of tragedy. God can produce uh, good out of, out of bitterness, out of anger, out of difficulty, out of suffering, out of pain. Can I get an amen? Out of emptiness, God can, in hidden ways, and so many times this is how God works in our life, in hidden ways, he brings his purposes to pass. It's funny, and I wasn't planning on sharing this story, uh, but I remember when my wife and I, 11 years ago, we were married. And I remember the first year we talked about we really wanted to get pregnant, and uh, God really started to speak to us about twin boys. And uh, we, we started praying about it. And uh, I remember, and this is, I've actually never shared this with the church. There was a young man, you've heard me share stories about my family. Uh, I had th two beautiful, not three, two beautiful sisters. And uh, they, I mean, they're great. I know I make fun of some of the stories that we have, but they were always there. Uh, Tracy uh, was amazing. I, I, I treated her like she was my brother, like she was beautiful. Uh, but uh, she would rebound the basketball for me. I would take her out. I turned her into a tomboy, and everyone said amen to that. And so um, I, I, I had two great sisters, had a great um, family, but I remember I would constantly, it was like my refrain, I would go to my parents and I would ask them, I would ask my mom, and I didn't know how things worked, right, biology and stuff. I'm like, mom, I want a bro, I want a younger brother. Always it was something on my heart that I wanted. Um, I didn't get it, so I turned my sister into my younger brother, right? That's kind of how it, how it happened. But it was something that God put on my heart, and so it's funny when we got married and my wife were talking about um, uh, twin boys, God put in her heart, and uh, we spent about five years trying to get pregnant. We went to specialists. They told us that we, they didn't know why, but uh, we, we obviously couldn't get pregnant. And so we got to the point, we got to the end of ourselves. And so we made a decision, the best decision of our life. This is funny. Sometimes God will work in miraculous ways. God will show himself to you and uh, will do incredible things in your life and in your family. But sometimes God works in hidden ways. So we just made the decision. I, me, I was a little bit more reticent about adoption. Uh, at that time, again, this was a long time ago. I didn't know much about it. But my wife, she was like, uh, Chris, let's, let's do this. So we went to the social worker. Uh, we, we developed our profile. You know anything about it? We had a home study. Uh, we did some things. It took about a year for us to put everything together. And so uh, if you don't know how the process works, uh, your social worker will contact you if you've been selected, Right. So several times we were selected, we were kind of in the running, we were candidates with other families for kids and we never got a call back and it was a little discouraging. And we had our ups and downs 
And then uh, we had a it-so-happened moment on a good Friday. Many of you have heard this story. Uh, remember waking up, I'm writing a senior thesis paper on philosophy and psychology, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we get a phone call from our social worker uh, that we have been selected, and we were in the running with, I think, two other parents or two other families for twin boys. We didn't know that they were born. And uh, God has such a sense of humor. On Good Friday, we get the best news ever. And so we waited, we prayed, we told our family members, and uh, about six hours went by, and we were told the good news that we were selected uh, to be the parents of the two most beautiful boys in the world that are destroying me with their energy. But they are the two most beautiful boys in the world. And then a year later, we had the most beautiful girl, um, just again, through just happenstance, through the work of Jesus, brought into our life. And uh, it's amazing how God will bring to fruition what he promises you according to his timetable. And this word, we all have it so happens. Right now, you are in a it so happened moment. Some of you are in tragedy. Some of you are coming out of difficulty or going through suffering right now. But there are things that God is doing that lie outside the range of your vision. Like, and I got to challenge this therapeutic perspective that we have absolute knowledge about ourselves, God, the cosmos, and our circumstances. You don't. You're infallible, right? Or fallible. You're not infallible. You're fallible, right? You're not God. You're not a demagogue. Our, our perspective on life is limited. And yet we have the good news in this story that even though we can't see what God is doing, God is still working to bring his purposes to fruition in our life. Amen? So then we come to verse 4. It says, Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. I want to talk, this is, this is a case study about Boaz. And I want to talk to you about why Boaz stands out for the right reason. We have Boaz, and, and Boaz and Ruth uh, messages were always confusing. Because uh, I don't want, many times when we talk about Boaz, because he's like Thor, and he has his G-Wagon, and, like, and all the girls like swoon, like all the ruse. They leave usually a message, and like, I can't wait for my Thor and all the guys leave depressed because we can't live up to Boaz, right? But we don't know. Boaz might have been four foot eleven. Even for four foot eleven, there's nothing wrong with that. But who knows what Boaz looked like, what he had? We know he's wealthy, we know he's prominent, but the story doesn't go like that. I'm not trying to depress anybody. We're just trying to uh, here's a case study about why Boaz stands out. He doesn't stand out because of his long hair, he doesn't stand out because of his achievements, he doesn't stand out because he has 1.3 million followers, right? on Twitter or Instagram. He doesn't stand out because he has $5 billion in the bank. He stands out because of his generosity. And we come to verse four, and uh, the reapers say, the Lord be with you. And he said to the reapers, excuse me, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. This is fascinating because what Boaz is doing, he's functioning like a priest. In Numbers chapter six, verse 24, the priest would go in the tabernacle, and they would announce a blessing on the people. And then the people would respond with a blessing back to the priest. So here we have Boaz, a wealthy man, going to his place of work and functioning like a pastor. Here we have, the, in the Bible, just so you know, there isn't this split-level worldview where you have the sacred, and we kind of privatize our relationship with God, like we come to church on Sundays, and we kind of do our thing, and then we kind of go throughout the week, and we don't really tell people about our relationship with God. We're not really blessing people, right? Um, and then we have our, our secular life where we just kind of, we kind of do what we want to do. We kind of party. We have a good time. There is no split-level worldview in the Bible. Boaz is generous with his workers in his business. In other words, Boaz has turned his business into his ministry. Can I talk to people maybe today that have money, and maybe you're running your own company, you have an incredible responsibility, an incredible opportunity to bless those who God has assigned under you. He functions like a priest. Now, there's some people in this world that they're not gonna know me. They're not gonna come and listen to me, but they'll come and listen to you because of your relationship that you have with them. Let me just say this, you can love money, you can love money. If you love money, you will use people. 
But you can love people and you can use money to bless people. Come on, we're called to love people with the generosity that God has shown to us. So Boaz here is functioning like a priest. He's blessing his people. He's obviously set aside. You have a provision in the law where uh, landowners would have to set aside um, their, their fields for those who were disadvantaged. They could not maximize their profits. They were forbidden to maximize their profits. Boaz probably tied at least 10% and probably another 15% of his profits he would use for the disadvantaged. So you see a very generous man. He has, he's, he's in microcosm, a generous heart lived out. Then we come to verse five. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So he sees Ruth, verse six. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And then he continues, she said in verse seven, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Verse eight, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Could you say my daughter? Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. And he continues in verse 9, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Here we have, again, an example of generosity. The first thing he says when he sees Ruth is, oh, daughter. Like, some people think that's like patronizing. Right? Some scholars have said, well, maybe that's kind of an indication that Boaz is a little bit older. I don't think that's the case. I think Boaz sees Ruth as God sees Ruth. Not, not vulnerable, not victim. We'll talk about this in a little bit. Not, not some woman from Moab, not some woman that I can use for my own sake, right? Not some not some person that's in a really difficult situation that uh, through utility that I can get something out. No, he treats Ruth with dignity. I think when he said, oh, daughter, he's giving dignity back to Ruth. I think we need to give dignity back to our culture. We need to give dignity back to people. Amen? We're not called to use people for our own end and for our own sake. Do I have some people that are alive here this morning? Like, hey, Ruth, in, in the eyes of Boaz, is not like a huckleberry shake. How many of you love huckleberry shakes? You can use huckleberry shakes as much as you want, right? Huckleberries are not going to be like, oh, don't eat me, right? Don't use me, right? That's a little bit weird. They're, they don't have consciousness, right? You can do whatever you want with huckleberries, right? You can get, you can extract the sugar out of huckleberries for your own sake, but we're not called to use people for our own end and for our own sake. We're called to serve them and to love them and to treat them as God would treat them. And then verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord will repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Verse 13, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me, spoken kindly to, to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. I love this. So check this out. I'd love to write a book on this one day. And I, I think this is, some, this is a topic we gotta talk more about. But uh, here we have this proto-political philosophy at work. He, in the words of MLK, he treats Ruth not on the basis of the color of her skin, but the conduct of her character. This is old school identity politics which goes all the way back to the early beginnings of the civil rights movement, MLK, which is all Jesus-style stuff. Like, it's okay to speak truth to power. Can I get an amen to that? And I'm gonna talk more about this at the end of my message. It's okay 
to get angry about stuff. I think we should be angry about how people deface God's beautiful world. Can I get an amen? And I think we need to speak truth to power. But the end game when it comes to uh, this treating people not on the basis of the color of their skin but on the conduct of their character is all about reconciliation. So his, his relationship with Ruth is not based on, oh, you're from Moab. Oh, you're immigrating. Oh, you're, you're this. Oh, you're this. All these labels. He bases his relationship. His relationship is predicated with Ruth on the conduct of who she is. Come on. Who you are is more important than what you look like in the kingdom of Jesus. I was hoping for a better amen. And this is important for us to understand. This is, this is in, in microcosm, this beautiful display of generosity. Boaz looks to Ruth. And in this ancient Near East setting, this is, this is, this is revolutionary. Doesn't treat her, Ruth from Moab, as Ruth from Moab. Treats her based on her heart for Naomi and her covenant faithfulness. It's crazy. Like, you know, we, we talk about, anybody been on ChristianMingle.com? Or eHarmony, like when I, when I was dating my wife, we didn't have that, so I don't know. I, th I think you have profiles, right? So could you imagine, there's, there's this radical social distance that exists between um, Thor, who we call Boaz, right, and Ruth. Ruth is essentially, man, she's, she's immigrated from Moab. Remember, Moab is the archetype of sexual disorder. She's on the, she comes from the other side of the tracks, right? She's basically dumpster diving. She's at that point. She's essentially trying to survive. A woman in this ancient setting without a husband. I know some people find this offensive, but just go with me. This is a different culture, a different time. They had no economic support. Remember, no women's suffrage, uh, no equal pay opportunity, nothing like we have today. And we have Boaz. Imagine your profile. Boaz goes on the computer, whatever, his phone, and he looks at Ruth's profile and has widowed, right, barren, been trying to have kids, tried for 10 years, and then I lost my husband. Uh, and then also, if we, like, start dating, just so you know, my mother-in-law is living with me for the rest of my life. <laughs> and she's, she's a self-confessing, I don't think anyone should ever say this, but she's a self-confessing bitter old woman, and she's living with me, right? Uh, she, she puts on her profile that I used to worship the god Chemosh, right? That's just, like, Satanism, right? And we used to sacrifice kids. And, and so, uh, do you want to date me? So um, you, you got to understand this radical social distance, religious distance between uh, Boaz and Ruth. And yet Boaz doesn't, doesn't play to the labels. He just, his relationship with her is based on generosity. And we continue in the story, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roast, roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. Next verse, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean, even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. And then he continues, so she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah, maybe about 30 pounds, I think, of barley. And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out, gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So one day's work, equal because of Boaz for Ruth, about a week's worth of wages. Again, Boaz exemplifying Generosity. This is, this is the church that I want us to continue to be. God's called us to stand out. Can I get an amen? Okay, about 80 of you believe that, all right? Come on. God, God's called us to stand out. We stand out not by shouting people down. We stand out by exhibiting the love and the goodness and the generosity that goes beyond what's expected. Because what Boaz is doing is he's essentially going beyond what was expected in this ancient setting. And what do we call that? We call that grace. Grace. God has exemplified his love by sending his son, Jesus. 
went to the cross, was buried, and came back from the dead. And behind all of that is God going beyond what we would ever expect. When we truly get to know ourselves, that we're all broken, and we all want our own way. And this is the story of the gospel in miniature. And God loved us in spite. I want you to hear me. Come on. And I don't care if you've been in church for a long time, but please hear me today. God loves you in spite of who you are and what you've done. There's no one in this room that's an exemplar of goodness and holiness and righteousness. No one in this room is perfect. Everyone needs God to come through his son Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to put our lives back together. Amen? So Boaz, he, he, gives, he gives his resources to help Ruth. And then we come to chapter 4. And I just want to read this really quick. Chapter 3 is about, it's culturally, I, we'll, we'll talk about this next week. I wouldn't recommend doing some of the things that Ruth did. Uh, Naomi gives some bad advice. We'll talk about that. And we come to verse 4. Essentially, Ruth proposes to Thor, okay? So kind of a little bit awkward in the middle of the night. Um, and Boaz agrees. So that's essentially chapter 3. Then we come to chapter 4. I just want to read just a few verses and beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, and uh, he sat down, and behold, the Redeemer, everyone say Redeemer. The Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz kind of tricks him. He goes, said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And so this closer family member backs up a little bit and says, then the Redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Verse 7, now this is the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Is that the last verse that we have? So when the Redeemer said, verse 8, to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. Everyone say, witnesses. You are witnesses this day that I have brought or bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to her sons. Named Sickness and Dying, verse 10. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, brought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his, in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. So what is going on? Like what in the world? Like I don't recommend that you do this, right? Um, in this, again, in, in Jewish culture, there was, there was a provision in the law. You can find this in Leviticus chapter 25 that um, if... The people of God, they would come into the, a land flowing with, good, um, flowing with milk and honey. And essentially what they would do, they would divide up the land according to families. Well, we all know life. Everyone say life. Life would happen. And so some people would lose their, their land and uh, they'd be sold into either slavery. Uh, they would obviously become, they'd be reduced to a state of just being disadvantaged. So there were two provisions um, that would give any particular family that had to sell their land um, a, a second chance, and we call this redemption. Redemption is a commercial metaphor that means to buy back. And so in this provision, or there's two provisions in the Jewish law to help people get a second chance. The first one is jubilee. Jubilee is what happened every 50 years, and every 50 years, uh, the original land would go back to the original owners, it was a sheer act of grace. Now, we don't know if that was practiced a lot in Israel. Uh, it could have been. But here we have a revolutionary way of looking at land and property. Can I get any man to that? But then we had a second provision. We had what they call the Redeemer. Uh, the Redeemer 
were those who were close relatives. And what they could do, they could buy back the land of a close relative, take on the debt, and rescue someone who was in a state of slavery or lost their land. What's interesting about this story, though, is that we don't have any precedent. Scholars are befuddled by what Boaz does. Because a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, doesn't have to, by the provision of the law, marry someone. But, but Boaz decides to marry Ruth. We have actually a case study. It's called Leverett Marriage. You can find this in Genesis, where there were some brother-in-laws who would marry their deceased brother, brother's wife, to uh, perpetuate, in the words of Boaz, uh, their inheritance. It's weird. I don't recommend you do that. Everyone said amen. Okay, we live in a different culture. Can I get an amen? But here we just have a picture of kind of what's going on in this setting. So Boaz goes beyond what's expected. He kind of fuses together leveret marriage with kinsman redeemer, and he marries Ruth. So what happens when he marries Ruth? Well, number one, he takes on all of her debt. Could you imagine? You're, 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 you're trying to survive, and you're going to the food bank, and someone comes and marries you, right? It would be weird, but let's just go with it. And you have a couple million dollars in debt, and in one day, it's gone. Like, you'd be saying hallelujah a lot. You'd be high-fiving a lot of people, right? You'd be on Instagram. You'd be, like, you'd be, you'd be celebrating. It's incredible. And this is what, again, this is a, a, a sign of what Jesus would do for us. Here we have, like, a, a miniature picture. Uh, scholars will call it, like, a type of what God would do for us. He would forgive us of our sins. Those, those sins and the debts that, we have, uh, that we've colluded with, that have disfigured our own heart, that misshapen our own heart and how we see the world, has been forgiven if we're in Christ. But another thing happens. Not only is Ruth's debt wiped away in marriage, she also, it's a legal fact. Everyone say legal fact. All of Boaz's wealth is transferred to her. One day. So we're like, man, can, can we like build a time machine and go back and one day, debt's removed and she receives, it's legal fact, all of Boaz's wealth. Again, here we have a picture of what it means to be in Christ. Many Christians, they're like, man, I, I I'm, I'm in Christ. I heard you talk about this, Chris, that our life is bound up in the life of Jesus and that this forgiveness of sins, we kind of conceive of that in a static way. We're like, all oh, my debt's forgiven. And then we try to figure out for 50, 60 years after making a decision to follow Jesus, okay, what now? What do I do now after I believe? Well, the good news is, yes, your debt is removed. You have forgiveness in Jesus, you have healing through the power of the Holy Spirit. And not just for your mind, it's not just for your heart, it's also for your body. Can I get an amen, church? But you also have all the wealth of heaven at your disposal. Because your life is mingled. It's, it's inextricably bound up in the life of Christ. What is true of Jesus is also stinking true of you. That doesn't mean you're God, let me clarify. Doesn't mean that you're now like in some state of it being a demagogue, whatever figure. That means that simply because Jesus died to sin, if you're in Christ, you have died to sin. And because Jesus came back from the dead, literally came back from the dead, reverse entropy, death itself, you also have life and blessing. And yet so many of us don't walk like that. So many of us don't think like that. So many of us don't live like we have grace and anointing and the authority to do what God's called us to do every single day. But Jesus died for us. He was buried. And then on the third day, he came back from the dead. He launched new creation. And you and I, if we've made a decision to follow Jesus through faith and repentance, now can be a part of this new creation project where debts and sin have been forgiven, and now we have all the wealth and blessing not to use for our own sake, but to bless the world. Yeah. 
What's funny about this story, and the reason as I close here that Boaz stands out, is the, the word that's used, redeemer, and I read it in chapter four, uh, the word is, is translated such and such or so and so, or one translation has Mr. John Doe. We don't, it's, it's, it's funny, the storyteller is using kind of a form of poetic justice. The redeemer is a closer relative and he had the responsibility to buy back uh, the land that was being sold, Naomi's land. He chooses not to because of Ruth, who was from Moab. In this poetic way, the storyteller doesn't name his name. He will be anonymous for eternity. We know him as such and such or so and so or Mr. No Name or Mr. Anonymous or disappearing guy. We don't know him. Obviously, Boaz knew his name in a small village, yet Boaz doesn't speak his name. What's the point? You will only stand out in eternity if you practice generosity and go beyond what's expected of you. This man is Mr. No Name, John Doe. Invisible man for eternity because he played it safe and he didn't go beyond what's expected. You see, let, let me just say this really quick. We live in a moral cosmos. In other words, there's a fabric, there's a structure that our cosmos has. You, you can't, and if you go against the grain of the cosmos, you go against the grain of this fabric, you will only get death. And this moral cosmos that God has designed and created only runs on love and generosity. So if we practice generosity, what are we doing? We are practicing. We're practicing the character of God every single day. God built this world. Am I in a Pentecostal church this morning? God, I'm going Pastor Ken on you. I'm coming down the steps. Come on. God built the cosmos, what we call the space-time world. And I just did a, a Wikipedia check, and uh, I, I was just looking at trees. I'm like, how many trees or species of trees are there? We know, scientists will tell us, there are at least 100,000 species of different trees. Now, you go to South America, there's probably another 100,000 or 200,000 that we haven't even discovered yet. I don't know about you, but that kind of, it indicates that God is pretty lavish. He could have just gave us one tree or two or three, like gave us a couple species of tree, like God's a scrimper and he doesn't like, you know, he's frugal. It's like, I don't want these, these humans to like get too much. No, that's, that's not what we see in nature. We have a beautiful diversity. How many different species of banana do we have? Like 150 different species of banana. Did you know that? It's crazy. Uh, this world is not monochromatic. I so bad want to step down right here. But the back can't see me. I'm coming down and I'm back up. I'm coming down and I'm back up. This world isn't monochromatic and can I get an amen? You have evergreen trees. You have beautiful sunsets. When you look at nature, there's, there's this lavish quality to it which tells us that God in his essence, is a giver. He gives, he gives, he gives, he gives. One, one pastor said, living things are giving things. Moms, you give yourself every single day. Like I was Mr. Mom this last, the last three weeks and I never wanna be that again. But I gotta be it in the next few days. So pray for me. It's a mate, moms, what you do every single day for your kids. You give. Like plants, they give oxygen, right? Living things are giving things, which reflects who God is. God is a giver. And this moral fabric that shapes the this, this space-time continuum can only run on generosity, can only run on love. If you want life, if you want blessing, if, you want, if you're charismatic, you want the anointing, you want more grace, if you're a philosopher, if you want human flourishing, whatever it is, whatever you want in terms of the good life, 
It's on the other side of practicing generosity. So here's two things. Number one, and this is a charge to our church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to stand out. If you follow Jesus, Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 5. He says, guys, hey, check this out. This is who you are. If you're going to follow me, you're a light to the world. You're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So if you try to retreat into invisibility, you don't want to stand out, then you can't follow me. Think about it. There's, there's no one anonymous in the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 15 is this powerful picture of how everyone stands out in the eyes of heaven. You have the one shepherd that goes after the one sheep. In this ancient world, that would have been reckless for a shepherd to leave 99 sheep to simply go after one. But there's no anonymity in the kingdom of God. God doesn't play favorites. Can I get an amen to that? And then we have a woman who is searching frantically for one lost coin. Why? Because every person matters. And then we also have the father who loves and embraces the prodigal son. There's no an anonymity in the kingdom of God. You can't live in a state of incognito. God's called us. If we're following Jesus, our relationship with God, I've said this so many times, it's not private. It's not personal. Or excuse me, it is personal, but it's not private. You can't privatize your relationship. Isolate yourself from the world. You're called to be a visible presence in the world of public things. You are, whether you feel like it or not, ah, you are a light to the world. You are a city, well, I'm one person, just go with it. You are a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. And we're called to stand out for the right reasons. Number one, but how do we stand out? We gotta stand out with a generous heart. It's funny, people are standing out for all the wrong reasons. We're living in, one scholar says, we're living in an age of outrage, right? Everyone, it's like, it's almost a defining feature of life. You go on Twitter, it's like everyone is like crazy. Everyone's like filled with wrath. It feels like the French Revolution, a Robespierre, and where's the guillotine? It's like we're living in a new mobocracy. Now let me say this really quick. As Christians, you can find this in Ephesians chapter four, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna end here and then I wanna pray for you. Is this okay? Ephesians four says that um, we gotta speak the truth in love. Humans, we like to lie to ourselves, right? I realized quickly when, I, when we were, my wife and I were first married that I, man, I had a lot of work to do and that I had a tendency, you all do it, you all lie to yourself. I lie to myself and that's why marriage is so beautiful because it totally deconstructs you, right? And it shows you things that you have to work on. So we have to speak the truth in love and we can also be angry. We can also be angry and not sin. Can I get an amen? Is it okay to have outrage and anger when we see a school shooting? Can I get an amen to that? Yes. Can we be outraged at um, institutionalized racism? I didn't hear you. Yes, we can be outraged at things in this world, corruption that defaces God's beautiful world. But there's an expiration date to anger. It says, be angry and don't sin, but don't let the sun set on your anger. But I, I, I learned this in fifth grade, that milk has an expiration date, and if you don't value that, right, if you don't value that, you're gonna, it's, it's gonna be bad, it's gonna be bad. Like I haven't, I haven't had a glass of milk for 25 years, or 30, because I drank milk that was two weeks past the expiration date. Milk is disgusting, people. Anger is like that. You can't, you can't run your life on anger. There's no expiration date, though, on love and generosity. You find in Ephesians chapter 4 that the, that, that the community that's organized around Jesus is to be defined by forgiveness and love and reconciliation, not outrage. 
Outrage for many people is just a general defining feature of their life. It's their end. We're called to be angry and not to sin and to give it to God, but our end result is reconciliation. Our end result is forgiveness. Our end result is to practice, as I close, James chapter two, the royal law of love, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Chris, who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus tells us that's the wrong stinking question. Because when we say, who's my neighbor, we, we want to control. We want to define who we can love. Well, I just want to love Republicans, or I just want to love Democrats, or I just want to love vegans, and I most definitely don't want to love Philadelphia Eagle fans, right? When we choose who our neighbor is, we're inevitably going to choose people that we want to be our neighbor. The question that Jesus says that you need to ask yourself is, are you a neighbor? Are you a neighbor to Republicans and Democrats and atheists? Are you a neighbor to white supremacists? Are you a neighbor to immigrants? I'm offending every Republican and every Democrat in this room. Are you a neighbor? Are you someone who practices generosity? Because when you practice generosity, that is when you are most like God. So let's speak the truth in love. Let's, let's demonstrate appropriate outrage and anger at things that deface God's people and God's beautiful world, but let's not let the sun set on our anger. Let's give our anger to Jesus. Can I get an amen? And let's believe that God through our lives will reconcile people in our city back to Jesus. Now, I end here and I want to pray. Martin Luther King, I think it's uh, his letters that he wrote in Birmingham jail, and he said... Um, Send, send your people, bomb us, take our kids, use violence on you. But one thing that I will do, I will wear you down with my love for you. And in the end, I will have you as my friend. New school identity politics doesn't, can't allow for that. Old school identity politics, which is so Jesus style, is all about reconciliation as an end reconciling enemies. Can I get an amen? Reconciling people through our, our love and our generosity and through our lives seeing God change people's hearts. That's the church that I want to be. I want to be like Boaz. I want to go beyond what's expected. I want people in this city to know the love of God by the way we tip. Can I get an amen? By the way we give. By the way, we take our resources and our energy and lavish our city with good things. Well, Chris, I only have five bucks. Take two of it and bless someone today. Well, Chris, I have 5,000. We'll take a chunk of that and bless someone today. We are gonna be blessing only people in this church. You're not gonna see me get on Twitter and outrage everybody. I'm not a wrathful guy. God's not called us to wrath. God's called us to forgiveness and reconciliation. Amen? We're going to stand out, and we're going to be the best in this city at loving people. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.